0: again, and welcome back to the show. It's Glenn coming at you this week. I pre-wrote the introduction this week, so if it sounds like I'm reading off a script, your ears aren't deceiving you. To start off, I'd like to follow up on something I said in the introduction to my last episode. I mentioned in that intro how I sometimes get tired of my voice, my appearance, and my sense of humor, and how listeners may get annoyed with me after a while as well. Upon reflecting back on those comments over the last couple weeks, I realized how self-absorbed that sounded. I then started thinking about self-absorption in general and recognized with some embarrassment that obsessing over myself and how I'm perceived is a terrible habit of mine. Before I move on, I'd like to draw a distinction between selfishness and self-absorption. I don't think that I'm all that selfish a person. I generally only take what I need and I try to give people as much space as they require. I'm also quite conscientious about not bothering people, and I'm good at minding my own business. Self-absorption, on the other hand, is something I struggle greatly with. I worry with regularity about how other people see me. I worry about my physical appearance, my level of intelligence compared to others, the dumb things I say to people in day-to-day conversation, etc. This brought to mind something my dad used to remind me of. He would tell me that nobody gives a shit what you do. They're too concerned with themselves. Now that's a bit harsh and oversimplified, but I understand the sentiment. No one is as concerned about you as you are. So we should all stop worrying so much and get on with living. What triggered me to talk about this topic, besides my intro from two weeks ago, was an email that dropped into my inbox by Nick Cave. Nick Cave is an Australian singer-songwriter and he runs a question answer forum via email called the Red Hand Files. I recommend looking it up. Basically, he asks for reader questions, and he answers them and shoots those correspondences out to a mailing list that I'm part of. The questions he receives are all over the map, and sometimes he packages a few questions together and then weaves a multifaceted answer. I'm going to read the email he sent out the other day because it deals with self absorption and I thought his perspective was quite wise. Before I read it, I want to provide the caveat that not all advice is created equal. I believe what Nick has to say has value, but you may not, and that's perfectly fine. We all deal with things on an individual level with many variables involved, and that's okay. Besides, if inspirational quotes and sage advice could save the world, we'd all be in a better place. Okay, here goes. I'll read the two reader questions first Followed by Nick's response. So, the next red-hand file is number 200. What are the red-hand files? I mean, what are you trying to do with them? By the way, I love them. They help. John, Lancashire, UK. I just feel so fucking empty. So hollow. What can I do? Marina, Madrid, Spain. Dear John and Marina, It might be worth bearing in mind, Marina, that this emptiness that you feel that we all feel to a greater or lesser degree, is not a condition in itself. Rather, it is an indicator of our own self-absorption and signals a need. It asks something of us, this emptiness, this hollowness. It is a call. It is a call to meaning and a call to love. It requires of us that we reach beyond our own dejection and attend to the condition of the world. For me personally, this is the gift of the Red Hand Files. By their very nature, Your questions draw me out of my own self-absorption by demanding an engagement with you all. This is not always easy, but a call to meaning rarely is. How happy we can feel in our own misery, how cozy, how safe. And so I read the hundreds of questions that come in each week and do my best to reply, regardless of my state of mind, truthfully and in good faith. You ask me, John, what I want from the Red Hand Files. Well, the answer is this. I want to facilitate, in some small way, a mutual journey towards meaning. To decrease the dimensions of our emptiness and draw us closer to love and to beauty. I understand that these sound like grandiose claims, but they are not. This common project, to improve matters, is available to all of us at every moment and in a multitude of ways, and exists in the smallest kindness, the most rudimentary act of tolerance, or in the simplest generosity. Today, John and Marina, my advice is to go out and save the world. Smile and say hello to the mean old bastard who lives next door, or the cranky cow at the corner shop, for they suffer too, and watch this small act of unsolicited kindness gather momentum and begin its journey around the world. Watch it thunder and roar through the ages, and change the nature of the cosmos itself. More grandiose claims? Hey, it's my 200th post. Today I can say what I like. Thank you everyone for improving the general condition of my life. I hope the Red Hand Files go some small way to improving yours. It is impossible to exaggerate just how unbelievably grateful I am to you all. With endless love, Nick. So there it is. I thought it was worth sharing. Today's episode is entitled Toilet Tank Lines and Melting Signs. I was inspired to write it after listening to Andrew's episode, Curiosity Killed the Cake. So thanks, Andrew. I figured, who doesn't like a fun story about acid? Most of us have one, I think. Most of the delinquents I know, anyway. I sincerely hope you guys are enjoying these stories, and if you are, please give us some support by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show via the various podcast apps. It's a mess out there at the moment, so take care and do something nice for someone who needs it. We'll talk in two weeks, and please tune in for Andrew's next episode in a week. Bye for now. I wouldn't describe myself as a risk-taker. I'm not the type to voluntarily hurl myself headlong into situations that could become perilous, Because of this, there are a ton of activities typically associated with risk or at least outcome uncertainty with potential for embarrassment that I do my best to stay away from. For example, I've never learned how to drive a standard transmission. I generally avoid power tools. I'm not a big fan of cliff diving or zip lining or other adventure sports, and I do everything I can to avoid unnecessary social interaction. That last one is a bit hyperbolic but I'm definitely not a social butterfly. I understand that there are people who might say that driving a stick shift, operating a drill, or mingling at a party are not exactly risky activities, but if you'll allow me to clarify, I'm including things that have a learning curve and require a certain amount of confidence to master. If I were to hypothesize as to why this is, I would say it's threefold. One, I don't like to put myself in situations where my life could needlessly end or be drastically altered. Two, I have an issue with performance anxiety. And three, I lack confidence when it comes to learning new things that are foreign to me. I tend to go into learning new skills with the attitude of, let's see how badly I can fuck this up. To be clear, I don't think that I'm flagrantly stupid. I'd say I come in somewhere close to average intelligence. However, I do seem to have a mental block when it comes to self-belief. Okay, with that admission of way more than you needed to know out of the way, we as flawed humans are also walking contradictions. I can say that I'm not a risk taker, or that I'm resistant to learning new things, and that's mostly true. But once in a while, I'll surprise myself by being completely comfortable doing something incredibly dumb and dangerous. There are things that I have no problem doing that other people, even self-proclaimed risk takers, would never think of doing. This is perhaps where I should make the distinction between activities or decisions involving calculated risk versus activities or decisions that are just plain idiotic. Most of the risky things that I'm comfortable doing fall into the latter category. For instance, if someone tells me to avoid a particular neighborhood in a city, my curiosity will always get the better of me and I will almost invariably go exploring in that section of town. Another example is my propensity to just up and quit something I don't like. I've vacated a number of decent-paying jobs, which at times has left me scrambling to find the money to make rent or buy groceries. I suppose some people might say that those two examples are representative of risky behavior, but I'm not too proud to say that they're just dumb, which leads me to the story I'd like to share with you now. Unsurprisingly, this story takes place in 1999, when I was just 17 years old. Not all 17-year-olds do ill-conceived things, but a lot do, including yours truly. It was the month of June, and the grade 12 academic year was winding down. The weather was turning from temperate to hot, and the summer vibes were kicking into high gear. One afternoon at the end of the school day, my friend Blake asked rather cryptically if I'd accompany him to pick something up. His hesitancy and edginess implied that we weren't going to pick up his volunteer schedule at the local soup kitchen, but having nothing else going on, I said why not. As we drove along unfamiliar roads, I finally asked him where we were going and what he was picking up. Blake smiled slyly and replied, you'll see. I started to experience some regret about saying yes to this secretive little endeavor of his. I just wanted something to do after school. But this was starting to feel like the beginning of a criminal plot. After a bit, we turned off the main highway onto a gravel side road that I had been down a few times before. There were two reasons that I knew of why folks used this pothole-strewn, suspension-damaging excuse for a road. One was to access a small lake used for boating and fishing, and the other was to buy drugs off paranoid, vicious dog-owning dealers who thought they were far enough off the beaten path to avoid the attention of law enforcement. We very slowly made our way down the twisting and turning road to lessen the chance of a costly repair. After passing neglected property after neglected property with broken down appliances and vehicles rotting in yards, Blake finally came to a stop and threw it into park outside of one of the few decently maintained homes. Wait here, he said, and before I had a chance to ask another question, he was making his way to the front door. While I waited in the car, I was imagining all sorts of potential items that Blake could be picking up. My first thought was that he was going to come out of that house with an abductee, hands tied behind their back and sock and mouth. Other possibilities that came to mind were a hockey bag full of dirty money, or perhaps some assortment of stolen goods to be sold on the black market. About 15 minutes after going inside, Blake exited the house with a confident stride suggesting he had gotten what he had come for. As he sat back down behind the wheel, he handed me a small, folded-up piece of tinfoil. "'What is it?' I asked. "'Open it and see,' Blake replied mischievously. I peeled apart the tinfoil and found a tiny pill inside. I still didn't know what it was, but my first thought was that it would probably mess me up if I ingested it. As I looked at it with a puzzled expression... Blake piped up it's a microdot, acid in pill form I bought a few for myself and one for you as a thank you for coming with me I wasn't sure what to think I had smoked plenty of pot and hash before this and I had even tried small quantities of psilocybin but the word acid seemed to carry a particularly damning connotation at 17 though I was more than willing to experiment do I take the whole thing I inquired I'd cut it in two and then dissolve one half on your tongue. If you're not feeling much after an hour or so, take the second half, Blake replied, sounding like he'd done this a few times before. Because it was a school night, we had no intention of tripping that evening. I tucked the pill away in my jeans until a more suitable time and Blake drove me home. The following Saturday, I received a phone call from another friend of mine. It was my buddy Adam and he asked me if I'd care to drive to the mall with him so he could purchase the new album by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Really? I exclaimed. You're going to waste gas and hard-earned money on those hacks? Our taste in music didn't always align, but that's neither here nor there. After picking me up, Adam pulled his barely operational Chevy Cavalier into a service station. While he was fueling up, I suddenly remembered the micro dot which was still in the back pocket of my Levi's. Considering that I wasn't driving, and that I would be mostly loafing around for the remainder of the day, I decided that the time was right to see what this pill was all about. I pulled it from my pocket, and it looked even smaller than I had remembered. How was something this tiny supposed to have an effect on me, I thought. And Blake wanted me to cut it in half? That wasn't happening. I didn't want to risk taking only half and not feeling anything. I felt I would be better served by taking the entire pill in order to maximize the experience. I also knew from past indiscretions that crushing it into powder form and snorting it up my nose would deliver it into my bloodstream faster than dissolving it on my tongue. If I was going to do it, I wanted to do it properly. I got out of the car and told Adam that I was going to use the bathroom before we carried on. Inside the filthy gas station men's room I set the pill on the back of the toilet tank and pressed down on it with the bottom of my lighter, crushing it into a fine powder. I then took a straw that I nabbed from the coffee counter inside the gas station's convenience store and proceeded to snort the powder into my right nostril. The deed had been done, and now I waited for the fallout. I purchased a country time lemonade and made my way back to Adam's jalopy. As we pulled back onto the highway and headed for the mall, I was already starting to feel a bit strange. I didn't think the effects were supposed to kick in this fast, but there was no turning back now. I began to feel lightheaded and flushed. To make matters worse, the lemonade I was drinking did not seem to be moving through my body. It felt as if my stomach had an extremely limited capacity and that I had filled it up. The fluid was just sitting in one area, and causing considerable pain and bloating. "'You okay, man?' Adam asked. "'I'm not sure,' I replied with some concern in my voice. "'I took some acid back at the gas station and I'm feeling pretty weird.'
1: "'You
0: fucking idiot,' Adam shot back irritably. "'I wouldn't have invited you if I knew you were going to do something stupid.' Adam was no saint. He enjoyed smoking weed and getting drunk from time to time but he didn't have much tolerance for my misguided and reckless behavior. "'I'm not taking you to the hospital if you start flipping out on me,' he said. "'I'll be okay,' I replied with very little faith in that statement. I tried to hold it together the rest of the way to the mall, but I was feeling pretty rough. I still hadn't digested the lemonade and was still dizzy and sweating profusely. Adam being pissed off made me feel even worse.' As we circled the mall parking lot looking for a spot, I couldn't pretend to be okay any longer. Hurry up, man. I think I'm going to puke. Adam finally found a parking space, and as soon as he stopped the car, I threw open my door and the country time lemonade shot out of me like water from a fire hose. I felt immediate relief. It was the most uncomfortable indigestion I had ever experienced. Without uttering a word and looking exceedingly annoyed, Adam got out of the car and started toward the mall, and I quickly followed. As the physical discomfort faded, the mental confusion and anguish was just ramping up. Upon entering the mall, I began to feel intensely paranoid. My main concern was that I would run into someone I knew, and I was in no shape to have a conversation. I would have stayed in the car and waited, but I was a ball of energy and nerves, and there was no way I could sit still. My solution to the conundrum was to walk closely behind Adam through the mall with my hands on his shoulders, using his six-foot, two-inch frame as cover. Adam wasn't thrilled about this either, but at that point, I think he knew that he needed to help me get through this. This strange technique probably had the opposite effect of what I was trying to achieve, as I'm sure we were getting some curious stares, but lucid thought is not generally synonymous with tripping on acid. Fortunately, We made it to the music store unrecognized, and Adam made his purchase. We were successful in getting out unnoticed as well, and once we were back at the car, I breathed a huge sigh of relief. I wasn't out of the woods yet, though. In fact, the trip was just beginning. We spent the next several hours driving around town while I prayed to a god I didn't believe in to please guide me back to sobriety. Adam couldn't take me home because I didn't want to face my parents in the condition I was in. At one point, on what was probably our 15th lap around town, the sign at the local Petro Canada liquefied and began to run down its support frame. I'd never hallucinated before and it was equal parts captivating and terrifying. At another juncture, I yelled at Adam to take me to the emergency room because I thought I was foaming at the mouth. He calmly pulled over, and explained to me that the foamy spit in the corners of my mouth was due to dehydration. His calmness and poise brought me back to reality and we continued driving. It went on like this for what seemed like forever, but what was likely closer to about four hours. I would go through a wave of panic and irrationality, at which point Adam would talk me down and I'd be calm for a bit. Gradually, my calm moments began to outweigh my panicked ones. my heartbeat finally returned to normal what started as an ordinary and forgettable journey to the music store turned into a bad trip that i'll likely never forget notwithstanding my terrifying trip i have nothing against the use of acid or other psychedelics despite the fact that i haven't tripped again since that day except for mushrooms when the proper dose is taken in the right setting i believe from my limited experience that hallucinogens can produce an enlightening and meaningful result. However, I would advise against snorting an unknown quantity of acid off the back of a toilet and then wandering around in public. It's not a great feeling. I also want to say that for all of Adam's initial anger and frustration at the situation, he really came to my aid when I was losing my mind for those few hours in the car, and when I sobered up, I realized how grateful I was to him. A true friend helps you out of a jam, and he certainly did that for me. As far as his Red Hot Chili Peppers fandom is concerned, though, there's no making amends for bad taste in music. Just kidding, Adam. And thanks again.
1: it I'll do the same tomorrow Went the wrong direction Reaching perfection And losing your attention Always on your mind Long lost, sawless vines And in rapid succession I found the weapons To fend off all the brain hurt And befuddled minds Those who are Of Find your in light. Ben,
0: Benfrey, Benfrey. thanks for tuning in to the raised by whoops fake radio show Benfrey. this is Glenn both Andrew and I are grateful for your time and attention If you enjoyed that story, We'd appreciate if you could tell your friends, family, or even a few strangers about the show. Additionally, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. If you have a short story you'd like us to tell, or even some music you'd like to share, you can reach out via the website, RaisedByWhoops.com. We're glad to have you with us. Till next time, thanks, and take care.